Welcome to Beyond the Show, the podcast home of all things Cannabis Conference. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of the Cannabis Group at GIE Media. We're about three months out from Cannabis Conference, and I can speak for the whole Cannabis Business Times team when I say that we're very excited to get out to the show this year. There's a lot to talk about in this business right now, and Cannabis Conference is the place to get together and have those in-depth conversations about the shape and trajectory of the industry. Check out CannabisConference.com for all the information and sign up for the newsletter. We're going to have a lot more info coming soon. And hey, if there's something you want to make sure we talk about at the show, drop us a line on social. We're at Cannabis Business Times on Instagram, so be sure to follow us there. My guest this week is Kevin Slaughter, M&A and cannabis partner at Levenfeld Perlstein LLC. Kevin focuses on representing clients in complex commercial transactions, including mergers and acquisitions, financing agreements, joint ventures, private offerings, supply and service agreements, distribution agreements, development and licensing agreements, and manufacturing agreements. Kevin has particular experience representing Fortune 500 companies in middle market transactions. Additionally, Kevin is a go-to attorney for clients in the cannabis industry, advising them on a range of issues, including license applications, corporate governance, and funding. He also assists cannabis clients with organizational structure, real estate matters, branding and licensing agreements, and supply agreements. At Cannabis Conference 2022, he'll be speaking on the panel, Merger and Acquisition Lessons from Large and Small Operators. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Slaughter. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to the show this week. Very glad to have you aboard and, and to get a chance to connect with you on some M&A trends uh, in, in the cannabis market, which is obviously a very broad uh, phrase right there, but we'll narrow that down a bit. And of course, we'll be picking this conversation up in August anyway, and there's, there's always a lot more to say. It is a, a sort of a volatile topic that we're talking about uh, just in terms of the market. So uh, things are changing uh, as we speak. But of course, we're talking here in mid-May 2022, a few months out from the conference. I was hoping to maybe begin, Kevin, with if you could sort of describe the general state of the M&A market in early 2022 and, and whether it's been, I guess, meeting earlier projections for how the first part of this year might be going. Sure. And, you know, and thanks for having me on and uh, glad to participate in this. So, you know, at the beginning of 2022, I think if you look at cannabis, you look at M&A in the cannabis sector generally, including not just the U.S., but Canada, the trends say that M&A, M&A activity is up, um, you know, by some say 20 percent. Um, there have been, you know, at, at the beginning of April, because, you know, the data kind of always lags and, you know, a lot of these deals are private deals as opposed to public deals. There were just under maybe 60 deals with $3 billion of valuation. But if you zero in on the U.S. market, where a lot of that's where I exclusively work within the U.S. market, the U.S. market has been significantly weaker. Um, and the, the consolidation activity is actually down. Um, kind of year to date by, you know, like almost 10%. Um, and, um, and, and valuations are down. Um, and, you, you know, there was, you know, disp- that's despite kind of the big deal with Cresco and Verano, the two deals there. Um, but I, I think we're seeing there has been a little bit of a slow in the activity. I think a lot of it at is economic uncertainty. Um, I don't, I think that M&A will continue and I, I think it actually might tick up a bit, but I think it's going to be in particular areas of the industry. 
right? So last year we saw a dramatic slowdown in capital raising efforts. Um, a lot of that was valuations of privately held companies kind of just plummeted at the second part of the year. And that's continued. So that again, um, cap equity raises have trickled so far in 2022. Um, there's been some debt deals, but the cost of debt is up. You know, we've seen rates go up um, and rates were already high in this industry. So there's not a lot of room. I mean, there obviously the rates will continue to jump a little bit, but I think we're going to see warrants. We're going to see discounts on conversion, convertible securities. And the effect of cost of debt is, you know, going to be in the 30% range, which is going to be a very expensive money. Um, and, uh, so you've got slowdown in capital raise, you've got expensive debt. Also, I think the primary targets for the largest, larger MSOs are those second tier companies that have a market cap of, you know, 300 million or less. Um, there's a, that valuation gap between that second tier and the larger MSOs has continued from last year. So that makes them prime acquisition targets. Um, and they're going to cherry pick. They're going to look for the most robust markets, you know, markets with the, the largest potential where they can grow their, uh, their footprint in those states and uh, grow their overall portfolio and national footprint. I said a lot there. So if you want me to unpack any of that, let me know. No, that's great. And I mean, maybe maybe we'll start with that last point there. I mean, obviously, a lot of states have, have been coming online and that the pace of that is increasing. Are there certain markets that have more of that potential that those larger MSOs might be targeting? Yeah. So, I mean, again, so like like any other state, I mean, states with or any other industry, states with the larger populations, um, again, as because, again, you know, even though there are states that are medical only, I think REC is going to be the future. So New Jersey, New York, obviously. Um, Maryland has always been a great state, even though it's medical only. Um, everybody's looking for it right there. Illinois continues to be a great market. Um, so again, the more populous states and those states tend to be east of the, of the Mississippi. Yeah, I know. Um, so again, more states are coming online, more states are flipping over to adult use and just the, the market is generally expanding. I'm curious if you mentioned the term warrant earlier. If, the, you know, could you maybe unpack that term a little bit? I know there's sort of a, uh, there's there's triggers that, that come into play with warrants and time timelines that come into play. Why are those becoming more uh, visible, I suppose, in deals? And what's the strategy behind warrants? Yeah, so again, I mean, typically you'll see, you know, a lot of times, especially in this industry, the debt's really mezzanine debt, especially when you drop down to that second tier. Um, where the the bar the would be borrowers simply just don't have the economic performance to justify kind of the 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 premier or, or prime rates or terms if you will, so the lender you know obviously there will be an increased coupon on the debt right an interest rate that's pretty high, but again to kind of hedge their risk and give them more coverage they may ask for convertible securities at a discount. Right. So you'll look for a 20, 30 percent discount on, on what the per share price is. And the warrants are another feature where basically as a, as a condition of doing the debt, the lender is lender is granted warrants that will have a, uh, a life or a strike life or an exercise period of you know, anywhere from two to five years. And then there will be uh, the option price or the exercise price will be at a discount to what the current share price is. So typically it's not as um, generous as the discount price on the convertible securities. It's usually about somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 50% higher than what that the conversion price is. Just out of curiosity, but 
it's all hedging. It's all hedging the risk. It's just more coverage for the lender. Yeah. And of course, this industry is ripe with risk. I'm curious if, um, do we see warrants uh, often outside of the cannabis industry or, or do you see them more I, in these risk-based industries like this? So it's, it's, it, it's really a feature of, uh, of the kind of that classification of debt, mm-hmm. the more risky debt across industries, you'll start to see warrants. Gotcha. Um, I'm curious, sort of drilling down on maybe some market segments. I know uh, we've talked about a couple, well, you've mentioned a couple of the big blockbuster deals this year. We've referenced uh, MSOs targeting those second tier businesses with still fairly large uh, market caps. Are there um, segments of the industry, maybe setting aside vertically integrated operators, are there segments of the industry that are seeing uh, any any hot spots, maybe within retail in particular, or even on the, the processing side? Yeah. So, you know, you know, and again, my, my, my uh, practice focuses largely on, on private deals. Mm-hmm. So again, I've seen kind of, kind of the historical trends where either a larger fish is looking to buy a smaller uh, fish and, and increase their footprint, ideally looking for vertically integrated. Um, and I've seen kind of in that second tier, you know, relatively equal size companies that complement each other in a, in a particular jurisdiction. Like I worked on a, I'm working on a deal now, where one group has got a handful of dispensaries, another group's got a cultivation. They've got some synergies, and again, again, trying to consolidate so they have a company so they can continue. Because as you know, cannabis is a very capital-intensive business. You know, with that consolidated, they have a consolidated business. They have a stronger business. You know, again, kind of people looking forward to you know, Safe Banking Act and things like that in, in a position to get more favorable debt terms. And, you know, when the equity markets kind of open back up, being able to raise equity if needed be, need be. But again, kind of just kind of this the classic blocking and tackling for M&A, like looking for synergies and growth, um, kind of teaming up to work together to have a better chance to survive and thrive. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I know you just mentioned, you know, the possibility of banking reform that's that's you know sitting in D.C. right now. Uh, you had mentioned a couple of the larger M&A deals. Is there uh, a source of, of tension between the scope of these deals in some cases and the obvious federal legal status of cannabis? Meaning, is the federal government interested in watching these deals as they're they're being uh, you know uh, announced? Yes, I mean, so it's interesting. We, you know, with respect to kind of the criminalization at the federal level, it's always been kind of this interesting kind of dance where basically the federal government has basically agreed to look the other way. With that being said, you know, deals that fall within the Hartscott-Rodino threshold for, you know, an HRS or HSR filing, they still have to file. I mean, a couple of days ago, Cresco announced that the waiting period for their HSR, their HSR 30-day waiting period had expired. So, but it's interesting because, and I was thinking about this, you know, the other day when I saw that press release come across. So typically the Harscott-Rodino is the act that if there is a, a, a merger, a merger of consequence that has potential antitrust implications, you have to make a filing with the DOJ. Typically there's a, uh, a size of person and a size of deal test that gets applied. So if, if one of the participants has, um, I believe it's 200, if they have net sales of more than 202 million or total assets, um, more than the 202 million and the other parties got is the size of 20.2 million or total sales more than 22.0 million, you become a, you, you come under HSR scrutiny and then you make this filing. The DOJ has 30 days to take a look at it. 
if they think that there are concerns for antitrust, they'll ask for a second submission. So that's what just expired for Cresco. But it's interesting because of the state overlay, there's kind of this built-in buffer that addresses some of the antitrust concerns. Like, so a lot of, most states, I can't think of a state that doesn't have this, has a limit on how many assets, you know, whether they be retail assets or cultivation assets, that any one quote unquote person can have an interest in. So again, even with Cresco and typically with these large deals, there's a shedding of assets that has to happen for the deal to go through. So there's kind of this built-in structure. So my guess is that as so long as we've got this state kind of antitrust feature kind of built into the regs, that I don't think we're going to see HSR concerns kind of just because of that, quite frankly, no matter no matter if, if these companies are large, these deals are larger and involve players that would otherwise come under this HSR scrutiny. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I was going to sort of jump ahead and, and no one wants to play the, the conjecture game of, of when federal legalization may happen and what that might look like. But, uh, you know, just sort of listening to you discuss that, of course, my mind was flashing forward to even larger currently non-cannabis related companies trying to get into the space and participating in M&A to some extent. And, you know, this is all just uh, looking to the future. There's no crystal ball, but I would imagine significantly larger companies are, are eyeing the market and, uh, and developing plans. I know there was at one point, I think um, some Canadian company that had uh, uh, invested in um, acreage, I believe. And there was, I think, warrants attached to federal legalization. Now this, this was a few years ago, but I'm wondering if what you think about that and, and you know, the federal federal legalization trigger and how it might affect the M&A market. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think that if you'd have asked me this question last year, I, I, and a lot of people in the industry felt optimistic that we would see some modified safe banking act come this year. I do not think that's going to happen this year. I mean, again, you know, it's been publicly announced that the soonest that the, any type of legislation would be introduced would be in the in the in the, the fall session. I, I just don't see it happening. I think that you know a lot of it is uncertain. We got to see what happens in the midterms, um, and I think it's going to be something that kind of falls victim to the politics. You know, it's something that a lot of people in the Democratic Party have been championing. They are kind of been pushing these wide sweeping reforms. Republicans traditionally have wanted to take a more incremental approach. I think the politics and the optics, especially if the Democrats don't do well in the midterms, that you know, I think there's going to be resistance on their part to let Republicans take credit. I think Republicans are going to be slow and incremental and not have the type of sweeping reform that Democrats want. I think next year is the soonest that we see safe banking. I think the way it rolls out, I think you see some type of legislation that addresses the capital markets initially. I think uh, decriminalization and, and, and other legislation that would allow interstate commerce is far off, quite frankly. Um, but safe banking would help, and it would primarily help the larger MSOs that have the financial performance that kind of satisfy, you know, typical debt underwriting requirements. I think some of those second, there would be some in the second tier that will benefit, but you know that would largely benefit. The, the stronger stronger players. Um, it, it won't do so much for some of the weaker players that have got great assets, but just don't have the financial performance to withstand typical or customary debt underwriting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the phrase economic uncertainty uh, has not only colored this conversation a little bit, but, but certainly conversations all over the country right now. So bearing, you know, granted, a lot can change over the next few months, and this conversation will continue in August at the show. But I'm curious, just in more of a, an 
an action-oriented type of conversation to those who, who may be looking to uh, sell or be on the sell side of, uh, of some sort of transaction, maybe find an exit ramp of some sort for their growing company in, let's say, a limited license state, what should they be watching and, and how might they best target them or position themselves as, as acquisition targets? So, I mean, I, I, again, um, I think folks in that second tier, I think people in the second tier, I mean, first of all, generally speaking, any viable, anyone with a viable license and a viable business is an acquisition target. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's clear. I think that's still here. I think because of the valuation gap, you know, the would-be acquirers kind of see some value there. Um, and I think that the people that are participating in the more favorable states, the more robust markets, um, are, are, are going to be kind of primary and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, just they're, they're targets, you know, just, you know they're, they're kind of no brainer targets. The others are going to be more kind of entity based where there's synergies with would be, uh, targets. I think that we will continue to see transactions that are stock heavy where, you know, if, if, if you look at kind of recent deals, I mean, typically deals are 85% stock, 15% cash allows the would-be acquirers to take advantage of the valuation gaps. Um, it, so I, I think we see that, um, especially because I don't see capital, the capital raise activity being better anytime soon. And um, the reality of the situation is that would-be targets, you know, they need capital to kind of grow their businesses and sustain their businesses. And quite frankly, being acquired by a larger company is, 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 is the right answer or, and sometimes the only answer. Yeah, this this may be an overly basic follow-up question, but I'm curious how some of these transactions typically begin. Are the buyers courting sellers or are sellers, you know, quote unquote, putting a sign out in their yard, notifying folks that they, uh, they're they interested? I, you know, for what I've seen, I've seen both, but what mm-hmm. I've seen most and recently, and I say in the last, you know, for the first part of this year, definitely last year and the second half of the year before is that acquirers, you know, they're, they're aggressively trying to grow their businesses, right? Especially those in the first tier and some of the top performers in the second tier, right? So they know who's out there and they reach out, they, they reach out to would-be targets. And there are occasions that, you know, a lot of the folks in that second tier, especially the companies have demonstrated the ability to win limited license application processes in limited license states. Um, I think there's still kind of this, um, this opt- optimism that they can grow this great business and kind of grow it to the point that they, they have this great exit. And I'm not saying that's misplaced, but I think there's been a dose of reality in the last 18 months in terms of valuation depressions and market correction, quite frankly. And, and in some respects, the kind of the green rush is over. And I think some of the some of the investment and the acquisition principles that you see in other industries are now being applied in the cannabis industry, where people are looking at EBITDAs, revenues, cash flow, margins, et cetera. Um, and if you are in that second tier and you just don't have those economic indicators, you're going to, you mean, again, I think valuations are being compressed because of that. And, you know, some of these would-be operators are looking for this grand exit and kind of need to reset expectations um, and tying your, tying your ship and, and consolidating with a larger company that's demonstrated the ability to, to, to perform financially. Um, honestly is, you know, again, you're not going to, you know, maybe you have to taper the dreams and the expectations but I think it's, it's a great alternative for a lot of these companies and they should look at them. 
Absolutely. Well, and in terms of, of resetting expectations, not only for operators, but for, for stakeholders and, and observers of the industry, uh, I know that we're talking about a very, uh, you know, sort of volatile uh, M&A market here. And, and we're talking about an event that we're all going to get together at in, in three months. What are some things that you in particular are going to be keeping an eye on over the summer, some, whether that's market expectations or, you know, even the nuances of some of these transactions. Uh, I know that's only a three-month period. It's not the longest chunk of time in the world, but what are some things that you're keeping an eye on this summer? I, I, I'm certainly going to keep a, a steady on if whether or not this depressed capital raise environment continues. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, kind of keeping a close eye on debt, because the reality of the situation is until the equity markets open up, and that's accessible. There are just certain companies, again, that their only option, their only real viable option is going to be joint venture or to be acquired and, and consolidate. Um, because, again, this is a very capital intensive business. Um, and if you don't have capital, you can't grow, period. You, you can't grow. Um, I think to a certain extent that, you know, again, revenues seem to be down a little bit. The illicit market continues to thrive. Um so it, it's a little tougher than anyone expects, but to a certain extent, I mean, this, you know, uh, the pandemic has demonstrated and shown that this industry is robust and, and will withstand some of the typical uh, uh, cycles or downturns of the economy. But again, it's got its own headwind. And I think that, you know, again, the larger MSOs have indicated they're performing, they're, 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 they're in full stride. It's that second tier and even people that are in the bottom of that second tier, or even the third tier that I'm keeping my eye on. And I think their acquisition targets and or they're going to be assets available, um, you know, for pennies on the dollar if they wait too long. Yeah, I mean, the sense of a, of a ticking clock is 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 pretty clear for sure. And, and maybe it, it tends to feel like that anyway in an industry as, as young and uh, rapidly maturing as cannabis. But um but it certainly feels that way, especially when when you sort of realize uh, some of the political shenanigans going on in D.C. and, and the, the longer wait time will be. Uh, well, and, and, and you mentioned the ticking, the, the, the clock ticking again. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that's kind of fueling kind of the need for capital, the acquisition activity and just the capital market activity in general is that, you know, typically when a, a company is successful with an application process, they've, they've got typically got a year, 18 months to become operational. Well, you need cash. So those groups or those companies that are not well-funded, don't have their capital set up, they, they find themselves going to the equity markets, going to the debt markets. And again, they, but they have no economic performance in a lot of instances to kind of support the typical underwriting or even the investment scrutiny. So I, I, I think that we'll see outright acquisitions. I also think that we'll see some joint ventures and mergers of equals where people kind of figure out that, you know, we can we can put this together. We have a, a stronger company. We have synergies with respect to operational expertise or strengths. Um, but people are going to have to, I think, consolidation and joint ventures will be a way that, you know, a lot of these companies survive. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's always fascinating to sort of watch on the sidelines, not only when some of these big blockbuster announcements come out, but, but everything else, too. There's a lot of, a lot of activity out there, and, and uh, it's been interesting to watch the, the ups and downs, I suppose. And I'm sure we'll have plenty more to, uh, to talk about in, in a couple months out in, in Vegas in August. So certainly looking forward to that, Kevin, and, and really appreciate your time today uh, joining us on the show. My pleasure. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. 
Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Slaughter of Levenfeld Pearlstein LLC. There's always a lot to talk about with the whole M&A market scene in cannabis. It's uh, getting busy. It's slowing down. It's heating up. Lots of things have happened in that sector of the market over the last few years, and there's a lot of industry trends to watch that can tell us about not only where we've come as an industry, but where we're going for companies of all sizes, as noted. We're going to be picking up that conversation, of course, out at Cannabis Conference 2022. That's August 23rd to the 25th out in Las Vegas. You can learn more about the show at CannabisConference.com. And like I said at the top of the episode, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. We've got new speakers coming out almost daily at this point. The full three-day schedule of education sessions is there, and we're going to be expounding on each of those between now and the show. So you're going to want to learn more about what you're getting yourself into. Because like I said, we know you're going to be out there. We're excited to see you in Vegas. Make sure you lock in your, your ticket, your registration. Again, right now we're offering the lowest prices at this point, uh, and prices are only going to go up. So make sure you check out CannabisConference.com for all the information there. And we will see you out in Vegas. 